Well, let me start this morning with an edited uh, quote from a book that came out in 2006. Um, it says, do we participate in a politics of cynicism or a politics of hope? I'm not talking about blind optimism here. He's not talking about almost willful ignorance. No, I'm talking about something more substantial. Hope in the face of difficulty, hope in the face of uncertainty, the audacity of hope. Thus wrote uh, Barack Obama in his book, The Audacity of Hope. Uh, It was a term coined by his pastor, Jeremiah Wright, that he took and used in his book. And politics and controversies aside, the audacity of hope is a great phrase. And it's one that we'll use and focus on a little bit this morning. Because the passage we're in, 1 Thessalonians, the end of chapter 1, commends us to an audacious kind of hope. And so that's a theme and a phrase we'll come back to a couple times yet. The hope Thessalonians is connected to, of course, isn't about a political race. It's not about the next president. It's actually about the return, the physical return of the Lord Jesus Christ to the earth. So we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians 1. Uh, We'll actually look at verses 9 and 10, but when we read, we'll start at verse 6 to give a little bit of context. And then if you remember on this epistle, uh, Paul is writing from Corinth back to this group in Thessalonica. He and Silas and Timothy had been at briefly shared the gospel, folks had believed, a church had been born, and all of this had transpired amidst much persecution. And so he's concerned, he's writing back to them, and that that elicits uh, most of the material that he's talking about here this morning. So starting at verse 6 in chapter 1, Paul says, "...you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit." So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. That is, they have a reputation now. Verse 9, For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Uh, Before we get into the meat of what I I want to talk about this morning, we'll talk very briefly about two points. One is in verse 9, this phrase Paul says, you turn to God from idols. You turn to God from idols. There's this thought that they had been going in a certain direction. And when Paul and company come to town and share the gospel of Christ, the path they're on stops abruptly and they turn around to pursue a different course in life. So Paul says the reputation these folks had in their corner of the world, Macedonia and the surrounding regions, was that they were not the people they had been before they heard about Christ. Their lives had been changed. Now, we talked about this somewhat before when we talked about this transformation through imitation in these earlier verses in chapter 1. Their lives had been transformed and that had come about primarily because they were imitating what they'd seen in Paul and his friends. So, for instance, whatever their former way of life looked like, it had changed. And they weren't going to the temple anymore. 
And they didn't look the same way they had before. They didn't look like their neighbors anymore. Their lives had changed and everyone knew it. They weren't pursuing the same things they had. And if you look in the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, you see that this theme of turning or transformation in life, heading one direction and then suddenly turning because of a confrontation or a new relationship with God, this is a common theme throughout the scriptures. Uh, Sometimes, based on the word repentance, you know, when we say repentance, we're talking about we rethink something. We change our mind about something and that change of mind produces a, a change in our life. And that's what happened to them as well. So Paul reiterates again, everyone knows that this group of Christians, former pagans, now Christians, they're not the same people they used to be. There's been transformation. Um, if you came to Christ as an adult, uh, you already had an established pattern in your life probably. That is, Uh, Whatever you bought into, whatever your model for life was, that's what you acted on. And so your life looked a certain way. You were on a certain trajectory in life or a certain course. And then if you, as an adult, come to Christ, you've rethought things, you have a new relationship with God. And typically, for most of us, that means that like the Thessalonians, we have some kind of transformation as well. We have some kind of significant change. Um, In my case, I remember as a new Christian uh, talking with a fellow worker, and I was just telling him a little bit about what my life had been like before Christ. And he had glasses, and he looks at me over his glasses, and he says, I find that hard to believe. Because he only knew me as a Christian. He didn't know what I was like before. And guys who'd known me as a, Christ, or as a pagan, a semi-happy pagan, they didn't recognize my life afterwards either. There was transformation. If you've come to Christ as an adult, you probably have some similar story of transformation. We were characterized by this kind of life, and after our conversion, after we've come to faith in Christ, our life takes on a different bent. We look different, and people know it. Uh, Sometimes uh, people are born in a Christian family, and they come to Christ early, and they may say, I don't have a story of transformation like that. I, I knew about Christ when I was young. My parents raised me to know the scriptures. I don't have this kind of story. That's fine. Uh, In your case, hopefully, Lord willing, that simply means that most, if not all of your life, your life has looked different than the rest of the world around you, the rest of your neighbors. And that's the point here, too. The transformation is from what we're like on this earth apart from Christ, so that if if you've come to Christ early and you don't have a dramatic story of transformation, that's okay. Your life's still been transformed. You don't look like the surrounding world around you. So Paul brings up this issue of there was a turning in their life. Headed one direction, now they've turned and gone another direction. The other thing I'll just mention, perhaps just to stir the pot this morning in verse 10, because I'm not going to teach on this this morning other than to mention it. Uh, Verse 10, uh, Paul talks about the fact that the Thessalonians were rescued from the wrath to come. Rescued from the wrath to come. Uh, In our culture, in our day and age, the thought that God could be angry towards people and express anger towards people is anathema to most people in our culture. The the problem with that is, it's passages like this, and it only gets worse. Uh, Later in Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, this scripture mentions the fact that the Thessalonians understood they had not just turned the course of their life, they hadn't just come to know Christ, they'd actually been saved from something. 
And what they were saved from was God's wrath. And we won't get into this much this morning, but wrath is this overflowing anger that God has towards sin and towards those who oppose Him and His Son. And this comes out in spades, frankly, both Testaments, no matter which passages you look out, about God coming back to earth, which this passage is one, you see the same theme come up again and again and again. God has an overflowing anger related to sin, and He's going to do something about it, much of that related to the second coming of Christ or God's appearing on the earth. This is something we'll look at more fully later. I think it's relevant for us because it's something we don't want to think about, and yet it's a truth commonly presented in the Scripture that we need to be informed about. The place we'll hang our hat this morning is on two themes, uh, serving and waiting. In verse 9, Paul says, You turn to God from idols to do two things. One, to serve a living and true God. And two, to wait for His Son from heaven. So the Thessalonians go along in life. They stop, they turn to do two things. Serve the living God, wait for His Son from heaven. We're going to take the second of those first and talk about this theme of waiting. In this letter, in 1 Thessalonians and in 2 Thessalonians, the return of Christ to the earth is center stage. It's front and center as the theme in both epistles. So... When Paul went through that city and talked to people about Christ, one of the things he told them about right off the bat was about this prophetic element about Jesus was going to come back to the earth. Well, this set in their minds a series of questions, and they're curious. They want to know things. So they're asking Paul, what does this mean? What does this look like? Things like, when would Christ return? Uh, What would his return to the earth look like? Um, what would his return to the earth look like for people who were still alive when he returns? And also, what would that return look like for people who had already died, who didn't live to see physically in their lifetime his return to the earth? It's, It's engendered a bunch of questions. Their minds are turning. And so both of these epistles are written to address some of these concerns. Both letters. Uh, This theme of the second coming the return of Christ to the earth, it's a huge uh, theme in scriptures. One of the key terms used to describe this is the Greek term parousia. This is used uh, 24 times in the New Testament. 17 of those, it's referring to Christ's second coming. And of those 17 times, Paul uses it seven times. Now, I'm focusing on one term. It's not to say there's many more passages about the second coming, about Christ's return to the earth. But this is just one example Um, This term is used four times in Matthew 24. You might be aware Matthew 24 and 25 in the Gospels, kind of the largest amount of material we have on the second coming of Christ. The term is used there four times. 1 Corinthians 15, another passage talking about the end of the age and the resurrection brings up the same term. Paul uses this term four times in this epistle in 1 Thessalonians, two more times in 2 Thessalonians, two times in James, three times in 2 Peter and once in John. You get the picture. This is one Greek term that's used this frequently to talk about the second coming of Christ on top of all the other passages that don't use the same term. But it's a constant and recurring theme in the Scriptures. And this morning, because we're talking very briefly about this, when I'm talking about the second coming, the appearing, the presence of Christ, I'm just talking about, in general, His return to the earth. He gathers His own together. 
He punishes those who oppose Him, and He sets up His kingdom. We're not looking at finer points this morning about all kinds of things like when does the rapture of the church occur relative to the second coming. We're not talking about time elements specifically related to the return of Christ. We're just talking big picture. We know Christ is going to return to the earth. That's the thing. That's what the Thessalonians were banking on too. This was their audacious hope. They had an audacious hope about the second coming. And that's all. We're just talking big picture, painting in broad strokes this morning. In chapters 4 and 5, these elements come up again. We'll look at them in more detail there. Now, more often than not, if I talk to Christians about prophetic passages of the Scripture, I don't know if this is your take too, or the way you feel perhaps, uh, sort of yawns, uh, maybe very little interest, uh, because I think it goes something like this. Uh, there's so much written in the Bible about end times or future events, prophetic elements, that we personally feel overwhelmed. That is, even if we read our Bibles regularly, there's all these different passages, Old and New Testament, that talk about God, Christ coming back to the earth, and we don't have any clue how to synthesize those passages ourselves and put them together. So we feel personally overwhelmed just by the material in the text. That's one thing. And then also on top of that, If you listen to radio, if you read books, if you watch television, etc., you know that with this large body of information, texts in the scriptures on prophetic elements, there is an equally diverse group of opinions about what it all means and what it all doesn't mean. So we have a tendency to kind of throw our hands up and say, I don't know, and sort of, I don't care, I'm just going to live life and go on down the road anyway. Uh, I knew a guy, a good friend of mine, he's a pastor and teacher, and he's asked me more than once, Mike, what difference does it make if I understand the book of Revelation? And I'm thinking, you know, well, God put it there for a reason, and it's supposed to profit us, so there's probably some benefit in reading it and getting at least whatever we can out of it. But I think this, this thought is common, too much to know, too much to understand, I just won't worry about it. I think that's where most of us live. The trouble with this is, from my point of view, is that you sold the farm if that's the way you feel about the prophetic elements, especially as it concerns the second coming. That is that this theme is so big in the scripture and it's so important related to a Christian's motivation for the way we live in this life that if you don't determine between you and the Lord to have some basic grasp about the second coming and what that means to you and the way it's supposed to motivate or influence the way you look at life, I don't think it's possible biblically for you to live life well, wise, intelligently, or in a way that God wants you to be prepared. I don't think it's possible to live well if you don't come to some grasp of this element and if it doesn't influence the way you and I think day to day. Um, This is a real brief tour, but just to give you some sense of how prevalent this is in the Scriptures, and I'm not even going into the Old Testament. We're not even starting there, and the Old Testament's full of similar passages as well. But in the Gospels, just starting in the Gospels, Jesus promises His return in the Gospels time after time after time. And many, if not most of His parables, have this theme about He'll be gone and People will live a certain way in His absence, and then He'll return. And this is used over and over in the Gospels. Jesus says, I'm going to go, but I'll come back. 
and he illustrates that with numerous stories. The disciples, and this wasn't just sheer um, curiosity, the disciples knew that this was a big deal. And so they asked Jesus questions. And in fact, that important passage in Matthew chapters 24 and 25 that we have today to study come because the disciples say to Jesus in Matthew 24, 3, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Lord, these things you're talking about, the temple's destroyed, you're coming back. When do these things happen? What does it look like? Or in Acts 1, when Jesus is with them outside of Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives, he's getting ready to go back to heaven, and he's told them, don't worry, I'm going to come back to the earth. And they're asking again, well, Lord, is this the time when you're restoring the nation, the kingdom to Israel? Same thing, Lord. When does this happen? What does it look like? What are the, the repercussions for us and for the nation of Israel? Uh, when Peter preaches to the Jews after the resurrection in Acts 3.19, he says that times of refreshing would come in the presence of the Lord if the nation were converted. And this is the same thing. It's the same thought. Christ would return and Israel, the nation, would be blessed with these times of refreshing because Christ would personally be present with them again. Paul wrote it this way in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's thought there is, our lives are all tied up in Christ. Christ is in heaven. That's where our affections are. And so as those whose affections are given to Christ, we wait on the earth eagerly for His return. When I was a little guy, uh, one of 11 kids, my dad had owned his own business, and he would, he would come home each night when he could. And we would wait dinner, of course. And typically that was any time between about 5 and 6.30 or so. But we had this expectation that Dad would come home, but we weren't quite sure when. And when he came home, we'd all sit down at the dinner table and the family would all gather together. It was a great expectation. We eagerly awaited it, even though we weren't quite sure when it was going to happen. Same thought here. Christ is in heaven. We're eagerly waiting for Him. The early church taught and believed and was motivated by the thought that Jesus Christ was going to return. And I'm convinced in their minds the thought was He could come back at any time. That it was, it was a guiding light for the, their daily lives. The early church taught, believed, and was motivated by this thought that Christ was going to return. Paul calls it in... Second, or in Titus 2, Paul calls it a blessed hope. I'm thinking back to the audacity of hope. Paul calls it a blessed hope in Titus 2. And he describes it this way there, Titus 2, 11 through 13. Paul there says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, and instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Paul calls the return of Christ a blessed hope, thinking back to the words of Barack Obama, we could say today, an audacious hope. Now, if you went out today and told people you know at work or neighbors or whatever that you're waiting for Jesus Christ to return personally, physically to the earth, what do you think their response would be? Would they invite you to one of those white jackets that ties behind? Or maybe uh, prescribe you a strong medication? 
I'm waiting for Jesus. What if you told your Christian friends the same thing? It'd be about, it'd be about the same thing, wouldn't it? Incredulity, you're waiting for Jesus. But of course, this is what Paul says the Thessalonians were doing. It's what he says he was doing. It's what he tells us we should be doing. And yet the thought that we would actually think or live like Christ is returning today or imminently, it still sounds sort of far left feel, doesn't it? It's out there. It's wacky. Um, Ludicrous, soft-headed, fanciful thinking. I mean, we could come up with a number of terms, but rational or desirable is probably not among them. Uh, There are some reasons, I can think of a couple um, that we'll articulate this morning, a couple reasons why we sort of feel this way. And the first is this. The first is a relatively long history, relatively long, I'm thinking about 150 years, relatively long recent history of misguided thinking and talking and publications in which people have said Jesus is going to come back at this time. Jesus is coming back, and by the way, it's at this moment. So, for instance, going back to 1833, William Miller uh, was a preacher who said Jesus was going to return in 1843. And he actually hedged a little bit. That was shrewd on his part. Could be 1843 to 1844. This is one guy in the Northeast United States, but a guy that material gets a hold of this. And he starts publishing this in the 1830s. And this begins a movement throughout the United States, literally in which people sold their farms, left their businesses, left their jobs. They were so certain Christ was returning in this time frame. Well, that first time frame, 43 to 44, a little cushion area, of course, came and went, no return. So they said, well, we were wrong. It's actually 1844, later in the year. And of course, that time comes and goes as well. And the great expectation came to be called the great disappointment. Uh, Many of you are old enough to remember uh, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Come Back in 1988. That was a great seller. 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988. He's 20 years late. You get the picture. Somebody says, this is it. We believe it. And we know when it's going to happen. And it's going to happen now. And the times come and go and nothing happens. A recent book uh, called In the World But Not Of It by Brett Granger, he describes his own devout grandfather and its somewhat sympathetic treatment of fundamental Christians and somewhat not. But this was personal to him because his grandfather was an itinerant preacher in a fundamental Orthodox Christian group in the United States. And his grandfather believed that, yes, on September 11, 1988, Jesus Christ was going to return to the earth. And he was preaching this and teaching this in the churches in which he was traveling and visiting. And you can imagine, he said goodbye to his family members. Uh, They told people, assuming they weren't Christians and wouldn't be part of this uh, being taken up, they told them what to do with the things they'd left at the house, etc. And, of course, the day came and the day went and no return. Harold Camping, uh, who founded Family Radio, says in his publication uh, called We Are Almost There, that unquestionably, May 21st, 2011, the rapture of the church will occur. So if I talk to Christians or others and they say, um, not a big deal, not too interested, in part I understand it because we've got this 
kind of history. People are saying, look, people have said Christ is going to come. It's been 2,000 years, number one. And number two, we've had all these wackos telling us when it's going to happen. And of course, it never does. On a lighter note, if you've watched the movie about 10 years old called Waiting for Guffman, it's a similar theme in which uh, the people in a no-talent town of uh, Blaine, Missouri, are going to put on a dramatic production to celebrate the 150th anniversary of the town. Ken, you know what I'm talking about. And they have no talent whatsoever. But they hear that this Broadway producer, Guffman, is going to come and is going to review their dramatic presentation, their play. And so they are waiting for Guffman. And the performance comes on, and of course they're looking for Guffman in the audience, and the problem is nobody knows what he looks like. And I won't give the end of the movie away, but needless to say, they're disappointed. You can watch the movie. It's the same thing, though. We think this guy's going to come. Here's the time. The time comes, and where is Guffman? Or we might say, where's the bee for others in the world? And Christians might say, where is he? We, we, we understand he said he's coming, but we haven't seen it. It's been a long time. Second Peter talks about this same theme from the world's perspective. Where's the promise of his return? Well, there's some level at which we entertain those same thoughts. We say, well, if it was imminent, it's been 2,000 years. If we set a date, we blow it, we miss it, etc. Brett Granger in his book said this, um, and I think this describes most of us. Related to his grandfather, September 11th, 88, that's going to be it. He said, folks went back to living each moment as if Jesus might come without really expecting that he would. And ask yourself, does that describe your feelings? Jesus might come, but we really don't think he will. Or we really don't think he will at a time or in a way that will make any difference whatsoever in our life. In the words of Barack Obama, these people appeared to entertain a blind optimism and perhaps were guilty of willful ignorance. So somebody says, I'm not too concerned about prophecy. I don't know if Jesus is going to come back or when or what that will look like. I'm not too concerned. I sort of understand. I get it. There's another reason, too, and it's this. It's that uh, people just grow tired. How long can you entertain or hold up an expectation, especially one that uh, has any emotion behind it? How long can I wait for the same thing? In Matthew 25, Jesus told the story about ten virgins. Uh, There's going to be a wedding, and they're waiting for the bridegroom, and five are foolish and five are wise, which isn't the real point here. Um, But they're waiting for the bridegroom to come, get the bride, and then the celebration will begin. So there's the thought the bridegroom will come. We're not sure when, but we want to be ready. And as they wait, they grow weary, and they all fall asleep. Jesus goes on to say five are foolish. They weren't quite ready. Five are wise. They were But all of them fall asleep. The wise as well as the foolish fall asleep. They grew tired of waiting. And so the bridegroom comes and they have to wake up out of their sleep because they grew tired of waiting. Uh, In Luke 10, you remember the passage where Mary and Martha have the party and Martha's busy serving and The Lord says, uh, Martha, Martha, you're worried, you're bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. Sometimes life goes on, and there's so much to do, so much going on, so much we're responsible for, we lose focus, we get distracted, and there's just things we've got to attend to. And so that sense of expectancy 
or that anticipation for an event that doesn't come today or doesn't come tomorrow or in a week or a month. We just, we get tired. We wear out. Our minds revert to other things that are going on so that maintaining this mindset of waiting for Christ's return, it requires both both a dogged determination as well as an audacious hope or the audacity of hope. It requires both. That second thing Paul said the Thessalonians were doing, it was they were serving. So as long as Christ hasn't returned to the earth, they were serving. And we know already from some of the verses we've read, they were proclaiming Christ to others. That was part of the serving work they were doing. They were working at their jobs. If you read Second Thessalonians, you understand that during part of this period, because they were waiting for Christ and thought it was going to be imminent, some of them were leaving their jobs. They couldn't support their families or themselves. They were going to their Christian neighbors, still employed, saying, uh, we need some breakfast or we need some supper. Uh, this issue was happening back then as well as in today's culture. So they were working at their jobs. They were providing for the needs of others. They were contributing to the needs of those who were doing the work of Christ, supporting the gospel, etc. So they were serving and they were waiting. They were doing both at the same time. And again, if you look in Scripture, you see both of these themes are tied together commonly throughout the Scriptures. Luke 12 is one example of this. In Luke 12, starting at verse 36, Jesus says this, Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast, so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. In other words, these are the servants. They're paid to be ready to let the master in. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. In other words, the master will reward them for their faithful service, for staying up, for remaining alert, to let him in when he came. There's a sense of reward tied in the scriptures to waiting for Christ's return as well. And it says, whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them, blessed are those slaves. In other words, no matter how long it takes, if it's midnight or if it's three in the morning, those servants are blessed who have remained alert and waited for their master to come. The thing about the second coming is this. Uh, God has promised that it's going to happen. So God who can't lie said Christ is going to return to the earth. And then these scriptures and others tell us that that's supposed to be a motivation to our life every day, the way we think about life, so that our motives, the things we're doing, the things we're not doing, are based on or reflect the outlook we have about Christ and His return. And entertain me and yourselves for just a minute. Close your eyes and think for just a second. If Christ return right now this morning, Jesus returns right now this morning, what's your first thought? Um, are you glad Christ has returned? It's your expectation and you're glad to see Him. Or are you sad because other things in your life are, appear more desirable than seeing Him? If he returned right now, if your life was over and you saw him face to face now, he returns to the earth, would we feel shame because we've been doing things we shouldn't be doing or we haven't been doing things we should have been doing? What do you think? Christ returns today. Would I have any regrets about the way I've lived my life? Would I have any regrets about the way I live my life? 
that's the thing. If I entertain the return of Christ as the guiding star to the way I live my life, I'll live each day as if Christ could return, and I'll live a life with no regrets, no shame, no lasting disappointment. If I live my life with this as my guiding star, Christ is going to return, and it could be any time, and I need to be ready. It changes the way I see life. It motivates me to live in a way that pleases Christ. Let me close with this illustration. Kent mentioned uh, part of the story last week. But in Homer's Odyssey, you remember it's the story, kind of the adventure story of Odysseus. And, and so most of the story is uh, Odysseus and the guys, you know, on the ship and on the 20-year-long adventure. And it's an adventure epic. And it it catches our imagination because of the adventure aspect. But, of course, there's another side to the story, isn't there, of the Odyssey. And it's it's somebody was was back at home, isn't isn't it? The story of Penelope is also part of the story of the Odyssey. Because the king of Ithaca marries Penelope. They're married just long enough for her to get pregnant and bear a son. And then Odysseus takes off for the Trojan War. And the war lasts a while, and then he doesn't come back in his men. And so Penelope's wondering what happened, and is he ever going to come back? And of course, as the story goes, we know that he's gone for 20 years. And so while he's gone, she entertains this expectant hope, hope against hope, audacious hope, if you will, that he is still going to come back, even though everyone around her tells her he's not. And these would-be suitors, these would-be husbands come in and they basically take over her home. And they eat his food. And they sleep in his house. And she's doing her best during this time to maintain his realm, his property, if you will. So he's not eaten out of house and home. And she's trying to remain faithful to him as well at the same time. She weaves a shroud each day to put off these suitors and then takes it apart each night as she slyly tries to make sure that she remains ready for his return. And of course, eventually, 20 years is a long time. You know, in a story, you read it in a day, and it's over. But 20 years, it's this faithful waiting and faithful service over a very long period of time before he returns. And Penelope in the story shines as this paragon of virtue, both in the sense of serving and waiting. She's waiting for his return, and she's serving his interests as she does. And then let me close with three quick verses out of the very end of the Bible. Uh, Two things on this. Last words are important. Think of what you put on your gravestone. Last words. Or if you're dying, and, and you're seeing your friends or your family for the last time, what do you tell them? What are your last words? Last words are important. What are your last words? And also this, repetition is important. In the Bible, if something's repeated two or three times, it's to make sure that dull people like us get the point. If it's repeated two or three times, we're supposed to understand you can count on it. So Revelation 22, verse 7, Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Verse 12, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Verse 20, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. And then John's response is, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Three times in quick succession in the last book of the Bible, Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming quickly. You know what I think we're supposed to think? Behold, 
He's coming quickly. And John's response should be ours. Yes, come Lord Jesus. Nothing else on this earth is more important than seeing Christ and be reunited to Him. And to live a life that's informed by that audacious hope that everything else aside, Jesus is really going to come back. And as far as we know, it could be today or tomorrow, it could be at any time. That hope, that expectation is supposed to be the guiding light that informs the way we live life until He does. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we are like Martha. We get consumed in so many things in life on this earth that we forget the one thing that matters, and that's you. Lord, we get tired and fatigued in life. There is a lot to do for all of us, and we simply get absorbed in other things. Lord, we also don't want to feel like we're suckers or foolish or naive to entertain a thought about something that we're not really sure will happen or not sure will happen in a way that truly affects us. But Lord, I know if at no other level this deeply affects the motivation and the outlook we have on life. And I pray that for all of us, this thought and this audacious hope about your return would be that guiding star for us that fixes our orientation on you. And that day you do return, Lord, so that whether it's today next week, next month, next year, Lord, we will live in a way in which we have no regrets and we'll say day to day with John, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.